0: Evening everybody, please do grab a seat, let me add my welcome to John's, great to have you here, especially if you're visiting from out of town or not usually uh, in our evening service, it's great that you're here. Let me ask you to reach for a Bible, you were handed one when you came in I hope, and we are this evening on page 774, page 774. We've been, uh, as John said, we started this new series in Jonah last week and now we get to the end of chapter one and the start of chapter two. Let me pray as we turn to God's word together. I've been thinking all evening, Almighty God, that salvation belongs to you. We pray, therefore, that you would draw our hearts to you as we learn more of your salvation this evening. Would you show us ourselves and our plight apart from the Lord Jesus, would you show us more of our Savior, and would you train our hearts and our minds to know how we should respond to the one who has accomplished salvation for all who believe in the Lord Jesus. So work among us now, we pray, to the glory of your own name. Amen. We start reading them from Jonah chapter 1 and verse 17 and down to the end of chapter 2. You might remember if you were here last week, Jonah running away from God, big storm on the sea. They throw him overboard, big splash, and that's where we pick up the story. The sea has gone completely calm, verse 17, and the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight. Yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. What I have vowed I will pay, salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land." hope you'll keep that open uh, in front of you. There's also an outline of where we're going on the back of the little notice sheet that was in the Bible you were given when you came in. Um, there's a well-known article written by a guy called Matthew Paris in The Times a little while ago, um, one of the leading newspapers in the UK, if you're not from here. Um, he summarized what Christians believe, and then he said this. He did a pretty good job of summarizing it, actually, and then he said, if I believed that... Uh, he's not a Christian or even a tenth of that, I would drop my job, I would sell my house, I'd throw away my possessions, leave my acquaintances and set out into the world with a burning desire to know more. And when I'd found out more, to act upon it and to tell others. Far from being puzzled that Mormons and Adventists should knock at my door, I'm unable to understand how anyone who believes what's written in the Bible could choose to spend his waking hours in any other endeavor. Striking words from someone who doesn't believe the message of the Bible. It's no exaggeration uh, to say that every Christian I know finds at least some aspects of sharing their faith difficult, for some are... Reluctance is temperamental, we're naturally quiet, evangelism seems impossible for us, for others it's more of a cultural thing, we've been told faith is a really private thing, so evangelism, just talking about Jesus seems rude to impose our views on others. For others, it's just fear, we're worried that people will think we're weird if we talk about Jesus or they'll ask us a question we can't answer, and so much as we see the need For people to hear about Jesus would rather just leave it to professionals to do that job. But most of us then live with this tension because we know that sharing our faith is not an optional thing for a Christian. Jesus said, go and make disciples of all nations. The Apostle Paul says, the love of Christ compels us. Peter says, always be ready to give an answer to everyone who asks you the reason for the hope that you have. So we're left with this tension. It's scary, it's overwhelming, it seems inappropriate, but we know we're meant to be doing it. How are we meant to cope? The good news is that you don't need to be a superstar Christian who knows everything and has all of the answers to be used by God in this great work. One writer says, if God can use someone as reluctant and selfish as Jonah to accomplish the greatest urban revival in history, you can be sure that he can use us too. And one big lesson that we're picking up as we work our way through Jonah is that it's as we experience and as we reflect upon the saving love that God has shown to us in and through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, that we will in turn be motivated to share his compassion For those around us who are lost without him. One reason I say that's part of the message of the book of Jonah is that it comes in two halves. In chapters 1 and 2. Basically speaking, Jonah flees from his God-given mission. Then in chapters 3 and 4, he fulfills it. Um, The two halves of the book begin in the same way, uh, explicitly in the text in verse 1 of chapter 1 and then in verse 1 of chapter 3, the word of the Lord comes to Jonah, son of Amittai. Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry out, call out against it. What happens next is different. Because only the second time does Jonah obey. And if we ask, well, what changed in Jonah to help him go from fleeing God's mission to fulfilling it, then chapter two, our chapter tonight, is the answer. We'll discover in time that the change in Jonah is only partial at this stage. He still has loads to to learn But as he looks back on his experience later, he includes this poetic prayer in chapter two to teach us the lesson of verse nine that we've been thinking about all evening. Salvation belongs to the Lord. It's his. He's the author. He's the champion of salvation. Our sovereign Lord loves to save people as we saw last week. And so the more we know him, the more we will want to step beyond our comfort zones and play our part in his salvation plan. Uh, we've got two big headings this evening. They're on the sheet. First, salvation accomplished. And as I say, last week's passage ended with a big splash. The sailors chucked Jonah overboard. The sea is calm. And everyone presumes that Jonah is a, a goner. But then we read verse 17. And it's probably the bit that jumped out of the reading to you. The Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Uh, it's one of the Bible's most famous moments. The, the way you respond to it tells you a lot about what we think of God. Some, uh, forgive me for some terrible puns coming up, that's just a health warning. Uh, some find the whole of Jonah a bit hard to swallow. They say, thank you, uh, they say, isn't it all a bit fishy? There's another one. Are we really meant to believe that this actually happened and so unsurprisingly people have gone to great lengths to explain it all away. Uh, My favorite claims that Jonah somehow managed to swim ashore and he spent three days in a pub called the Great Fish where apparently he had a whale of a time and uh, then the tale grew from there. Others tried to defend the account by looking into different species of sea creatures, trying to work out which breed it might have been, and they collect stories from a guy called James Bartley. More recently, Richard Branson, you know, virgin guy, he claimed to have been eaten by a great fish and to have survived, so if it happened to them, it could have happened to Jonah. Both of those approaches actually miss the point. If you can accept the existence of a God who made... And sustains and controls the whole cosmos. If you can believe that God rose Jesus from the dead, there's nothing particularly stretching about reading Jonah literally. Jesus himself acknowledged that Jonah's rescue was unusual. He calls it a miraculous sign but he was unembarrassed to say that it happened. And because I trust him, I'm happy to agree. We can talk about it afterwards, but this is the last one. We mustn't turn the fish into a big red herring. Because although it's mentioned briefly at either end of the passage, the big mover here is not the fish. The hero of the story is the Lord. That word appointed in verse 17 comes up four times in Jonah, a number of times elsewhere in the Bible. It emphasizes God's sovereign initiative and control. And so in Psalm 147, he appoints the number of the stars and he gives to each their name. And here, the architect and achiever of salvation appoints a fish to come rescue Jonah. And as Jonah looks back on his rescue, uh, the action slows right down. In, in chapter one, the, the, the pace of the narrative, everything's as frenetic as the storm. Now we're almost in slow motion as Jonah is left alone with his thoughts and with his God. And as he prays, he he borrows language, interestingly, from about 14 different psalms. I've got a list of them here. I can show you later if you want to, to. To show effectively that this rescue is classic God. This is the God who is slow to anger and who abounds in steadfast love, doing what he always does and what he loves to do which is to save people who don't deserve it. So we can picture the scene, I'm sure Jonah swam confidently for a few moments as the ship sailed away. And you know what it's like when you've been swimming a bit too long, your arms start to grow weary. By the time the ship is just a dot on the horizon, I suspect Jonah's head was starting to go under. He'd have done that thing of pulling himself up and gulping for air. And then it would have been longer between breaths. Listen to how he describes his distress. In verse two, I was in the belly of shale. That's the place of the dead. In verse three, I was in the deep, the heart of the seas. The flood surrounded me. Your waves and billows passed over me. In verse five, the waters closed in over me to take my life, the deep, surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. But the the problem he was facing wasn't just physical, it was spiritual. In, In chapter one, Jonah was desperate, we saw, to flee from the presence of God. Terrifyingly, now God honors that wish. Uh, John Donne wrote, when all is done, the hell of hells, the torment of torments, is the everlasting absence of God and the everlasting impossibility of returning to his presence. To fall out of the hands of the living God, he said, is a horror beyond expression, beyond our imagination. And in verse 3, Jonah says to God, You cast me into the deep. You did it, God. Not the sailors, not even his own disobedience, but you, God, have set your face against me. As such, as we watch him sink underwater, Jonah is a a picture of humanity outside of Jesus Christ. Hopeless and helpless. This is all of us. Apart from the work of Jesus, Jonah can't save himself. Turning over a new leaf isn't going to rescue him at that moment, and no one else can save him either. There's no RNLI to come along and pull him out the water. There's no vaccine that could be found to protect us against the wrath of God. It's so us, hopeless, helpless, because we've turned away from God. And we deserve his wrath. But God's final word isn't of death or condemnation. And just as he delivered the sailors from death in chapter 1, and he'll deliver Nineveh from destruction in chapter 2, here he saves Jonah. He delivers him from certain drowning. So in verse 2, Jonah says, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, And he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. On to verse 6. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever, yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple, because salvation belongs to the Lord. And as we read the story, we are meant to marvel at the Lord's grace. We're meant to think, isn't it wonderful the way that God would be so kind, even to an 11th hour prodigal like Jonah? He deserved nothing but the Lord's anger, but the Lord listened to him and lifted him from the pit. And so finally, verse 10, the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. And I... I guess there wasn't a lot of dignity for Jonah on that beach. The smell must have been awful. But there was plenty of reason for praise. And as New Testament Christians, there is even deeper reason for praise because you can't read the story of the near death and reappearance of Jonah without your mind turning, I hope, to the actual death and real resurrection of the one who is greater than Jonah. I think it's true that in the New Testament, the only prophet to whom Jesus compares himself explicitly is Jonah. And in Matthew 12, he predicts that just as Jonah spent three days and three nights in the belly of a great fish, so too he, the Son of Man, would spend three days and nights in the heart of the earth before he was raised From the dead. But although the the time frame and although the shape of their stories is the same, the differences between Jonah and Jesus jump out at us as well. Fundamentally, Jonah's descent into the pit was deserved. Jesus's wasn't. Jonah was there because of his disobedience. Jesus was there actually because of his obedience to his Father to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jonah could hardly be said to have chosen his fate. But Jesus, we read in Luke's gospel, set his face resolutely to go to Jerusalem, willingly, freely, because he wanted to give his life as a ransom for many. Uh, We'll think more about the sign of Jonah next Sunday evening. But for now, just marvel with me at our Lord Jesus Christ. Consider his love, his humility that that drove him to leave the riches of heaven and to be made poor as he died on the cross so that we, through his poverty, might be made rich. Consider the power of Jesus that meant that death could not hold him. Consider the victory of his resurrection, the, the glory of his ascension. Because Jesus, the highest of all, was willing to be brought low so that if we trust in him, we will never need ourselves to experience the depths of hell that we deserve, but will one day instead be exalted with and in him, to reign with him forever. Apart from Jesus, our State is every bit as hopeless and helpless as Jonah's, but salvation belongs to the Lord. In a bit, we're going to end our time by singing one of the most recorded songs of all time, John Newton's famous hymn, Amazing Grace. He'd spent many years running from God. Just like Jonah, it was in a storm at sea that he finally came to his senses. And he asked God for mercy and he penned amazing grace to celebrate Christ's willingness to save a wretch like him. Many years later on his deathbed, aged 82, he wrote, my memory's nearly gone, but I remember two things, that I am a great sinner and that Jesus Christ is a great savior. So I do wanna ask this evening, whether you've received that grace personally. It's as simple as saying to God, I admit that I've disobeyed you and I deserve death. I believe that Jesus died in my place to save me. I want to live with Jesus as my Lord. And so I come to you and ask you to have mercy on me. A, B, C. Admit, believe, come. Because in Christ salvation is accomplished for as many as are willing to receive his grace as a free gift. It's one big lesson we're to take away from Jonah, chapter two, but there are two others that God wants us to reflect on, I think, and we're gonna group them together under our second heading on the sheet. Salvation accomplished and now salvation applied. And I've called the first Forsaken Love, and it comes from verse 8 down there, where Jonah says, those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. Here's my question, who do you reckon Jonah's talking about in verse 8? Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. Love Your first guess might be the sailors in chapter 1. Do you remember when the storm broke? Each of them cried out to their own God to save them, but salvation didn't belong to their God, so they, their idols were unable to save. Isaiah, you may remember, satirizes idolatry. He says the idols are just lumps of wood. Someone chops down a tree, uses half of it for firewood, the other half they carve into a god, and then they bow down and worship it and somehow they can't see the folly of what they're doing. Your idols can't hear you, he says. They can't see you. They don't know the future. Of course they can't save you. So there's a great folly to idolatry in the Bible, to worshiping anything other than the God who made everything. But here, Jonah's point not about the folly, but about the tragedy of following an idol, when we trust in created things rather than our creator. Even if they're good things like family or education or money or ourselves, if we think that they can save and fulfill us, we'll always end up disappointed because those good things were never designed to bear the weight of being the ultimate thing. And even worse, in focusing on them instead of God, Jonah says we forsake the hope of steadfast love. So God is love. He is always faithful and kind and true. He wants us to enjoy his perfect love forever. Imagine then standing in front of a drowning man and you throw him a life jacket and he spurns it. Or you find a beggar on the street with nothing absolutely nothing and you offer them a million pounds and they say no thank you it may be they're right but it's also a tragedy and so it is when anyone forsakes the love of God have you noticed that sometimes we we shy away from sharing our faith with other people because it feels arrogant to impose our beliefs upon them that's what our society tells us is going on, it's some sort of cultural imperialism to try and tell someone else what they ought to believe. That's not what we're doing. Really what we're doing is offering them the chance to experience a love like no other. Because God chose his love for us in this. It was while we were still sinners that Christ died for us. So who is verse eight talking about I'm sure it is talking about the world's idolatry, but I'm persuaded that Jonah has another target in mind as well. If you ask the, the question, what was the spiritual condition of God's own people, Israel at the time that Jonah, at the time of Jonah, two kings would tell us, one and two kings, that they too, were deep in the grip of idolatry? Uh, there's a refrain that runs through all of two kings. We're introduced to a new king and then we're told the new king did evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam. And the chief sin of Jeroboam, if you go back and read it in 1 Kings 12, was idolatry. So God had told his people to worship him alone, but uh, in his temple and through the Levites. But Jeroboam chucked all of that out of the window. This is just a bit of background for you. Jeroboam set up shrines in places like Bethel and Dan. He appointed a new priesthood of non-Levites and he told his people to worship some golden calves. So he was very corrupt in leading people into idolatry. So serious was the problem, God says that's the main reason he sent his people into exile in Babylon. So here's the, the edge to Jonah's words in verse 8 that if you, we might miss if we read them apart from their historical context. When he says, those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love, he could have added, and I'm talking about you, Israel. You are the people who are stuck in idolatry and you are the people who are risking forsaking the Lord's love. Uh, It's not uncommon for God's people, you'll know this in your own heart I think, to look over the fence at the world and at those who are living without Jesus and to think in some ways the grass looks a little bit greener because they're able just to live for themselves and to gratify their heart's desires and they don't have to deal with the inconveniences of God's call to holiness. And there's a bit in many of us that thinks, maybe I would be better off without Jesus. Without the chains of his word, I'd be free to just go and do whatever I wanted to, whenever I wanted to do it. But as Jonah looked back on his own efforts to run away from God, And as he remembered being cast into the deep, he wanted others to know what he had discovered to his cost, that the grass is not as green as it looks. And if you insist on paying regard to vain idols, like pleasure and popularity and prestige, then it will not end well. Because those idols cannot save you. And you will have forsaken the hope of steadfast love. And Jonah's saying, that's the mistake I made. That's the mistake the people of Israel were making. And God is saying to us, don't make that mistake. The Apostle John, little children, keep yourselves from idols. Jonah would say, amen. Amen. For that finally this evening thankful sacrifice um, just before we, we get to this let me point out a couple of odd things about jonah's prayer i wonder if these occurred to you already one is that it's a prayer to god but jonah ends up talking about himself more than he talks about god did you spot that so he does say salvation belongs to the lord he does say you heard my voice and brought my life from the pit But he talks about himself 24 times in the prayer. It's all I, me, and my. There's more than a whiff of this is still all about me going on there. Even verse 8 reminds us of the Pharisee in Jesus' parable. Lord, I thank you that I'm not like other people. I'm not someone who would forsake the Lord. Add to that, did you notice that he never says sorry? Sorry. Isn't that a little bit odd? So he, he knew that he'd fled from the Lord and he knew that the Lord was angry with him. But it apparently didn't occur to him at this stage to repent of his disobedience. So there's an open discussion that we should have at the end of chapter two. Is he a changed man, really, deeply from the heart? Or is he just relieved that he's not dead And it's weird, because his rescue is definitely a picture of salvation in the way that it's presented. But he's not yet a role model of transformation for us. He's tasted God's goodness, but even in the way he words verse eight, he doesn't yet seem to share God's heart for those who know nothing of his love. We'll have to come back to that when we see the mess he makes in chapters three. And four. But uh, for now, look at verse 9. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. So he's not the finished article, but he gets this right. And when you experience God's salvation personally, it always changes you and so just like the sailors in verse 16 of chapter 1 Jonah responds to the Lord's deliverance in a very similar way with sacrifices and a promise of future allegiance and that is where we should be today as well you'll know Paul in Romans 12 many of you I appeal to you therefore brothers and sisters by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. And a life of worship is all-encompassing. No part of life is left untouched. The grace of God that saves us also teaches us to say no to ungodliness and to live upright and godly lives. And when you've experienced the height and the breadth and the length and the depth of Christ's love, you'll think that no sacrifice is too great. You'll think to live is Christ and to die is gain. And friends, it will take a a lifetime to work through the implications of that. What difference should it make to your life if you've trusted in Jesus? and you've been saved by him, what difference should that make to your life? What difference should it make to the way that you live? What difference should it make to the things that you long to do? The person you want to be, your ambitions, your aspirations, what are you gonna do with 10, 20, 30, 50, 60 years, however long the Lord gives you? What difference does the fact that you are a sinner saved by him make to you today? Lifetime of implications. Every Christian should be saying to God, here am I, send me. But I want to end where we started with one in particular that we've chosen to lean into, especially through this series in Jonah. I quoted Matthew Parris at the start um, the illusionist Penn Gillette, maybe more your kind of guy than Matthew Paris. Um, he's an avowed atheist. Um, a guy gave him a Bible at the end of one of his shows. I don't know if you've seen this clip on YouTube or social media. You'll be able to find it. Um, and he recorded a piece to camera when he got back to his hotel room in which he said this. I've always said that I don't respect people that don't proselytize. I don't respect that at all. If you believe that there's a heaven and a hell and that people are going to be going to hell or not getting eternal life or whatever and you think that it's not really worth telling them this because it would make it socially awkward, how much do you have to hate somebody not to proselytize? How much do you have to hate somebody to believe that everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? If I believe beyond a shadow of doubt that a truck was bearing down on you and you didn't believe it, there comes a point when I tackle you. And this is more important than that. Friends, salvation belongs to the Lord. We don't go and share our faith with other people because we're made to feel guilty by an illustration. We do it because today is the day of salvation. We have different gifts, different opportunities, different responsibilities, uh, different friendship circles, different people that, in whose life God has put us. It's not about being a spiritual superhero who runs across the street to tackle someone and shove a carol service flyer into their hand. That's not the way that all of us work in life. But if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus, you are a partner in God's family business. And God has appointed you and me, and He has empowered us by His Spirit to be a herald of his glorious message of salvation. And as those who have received the steadfast love of the Lord, it's right that we should think to live as Christ and to want to give ourselves wholeheartedly to his work. Why don't I pray as we close? Our Father, we do want to thank you for the fact that salvation belongs to you. Thank you for this great picture of Salvation we see in Jonah, drowning, being rescued at the last minute. Thank you for the way that it points forward to the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And thank you for the way that it pictures the salvation that we have received if we've trusted in Christ. Deserving of your wrath, but rescued by your great Savior, the Lord Jesus. Salvation belongs to you. And we pray, therefore, that you would guard us from the mistake that Israel were making at the time of Jonah, of saying that we belong to you, but then living for idols and giving our hearts to other things. And we pray that we would respond instead with a desire to love you And to worship you with a voice of thanksgiving. And to be a living sacrifice to you. And to share in the work of your family business. Because salvation belongs to the Lord. And we pray it all in Jesus' name. And for his sake. Amen. We'll close with two songs. Salvation belongs to our God and then amazing grace to close.